I want to start uh, where we uh, I want to start where we ended last week. That's what we were talking about building up the church, building up one another. I share with you this text from Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The body of Christ, one of the blessings that we have, is stirring up one another. And, I, and I've been richly stirred by something that happened, and I, I want to share it with you if you don't mind. And even if you do, this Sunday, um, I was in Lot family, and uh, a couple in our Lot family who are newer to the church, newer to the faith, have gone through a lot of adversity in the last year. A lot of crazy stuff has happened. Uh, they, they started sharing the story, and um, here's how the story went. So they, they were in a, a furniture store, as you do, right, buying, uh, buying furniture, no less, and, and the, the salesperson uh, ended up selling them a couch. And, and because they're stirred by the gospel, they started pursuing this person in conversation which is always our opportunity. I mean, these people that we interact with every day, they're either a salesperson or a person. And they knew that, that she was a person, and so they started asking questions, digging into her life. Uh, what they found out soon was that uh, this, this uh, salesperson was a single mother, uh, couldn't afford childcare, and so what was happening was the mother was bringing her child with her, and then while she worked at this furniture store, the child would sit in the break room all day. And so what happened was this couple that, again, newer to the faith, newer to the church, uh, they just looked at each other and simultaneously prompted by the gospel's work in them, just looked at this mom and said, well, we'll, we'll watch your kid this summer. And when, when they shared that in Lot family, and, and I know this is borderline inappropriate, like, I wanted just to rip my shirt off and dance around. And the reason is because, like, that is the epitome of the gospel. Like, like stories like this are at our fingertips all of the time. And this newer to the faith, newer to the church couple have met this person a time in their life. And they hear a need and they instantly know that they can be the answer, at least in the human sense, to that need. And so, hey, listen, we'll watch your kid this summer, no problem. Guys, I, I long for us to be so stirred by what God is doing in our lives that that is the kind of conversation that we're consistently having. Listen, our conversations are so filled with, as we talked about last week, corruption, when they could be filled with the beauty of what God is doing in and around us all of the time. He's either at work or not. Let me say it another way. He's either God or not. And some of you are like, man, you better, you better settle down tonight. Like, you're off to a hot start. Yeah, you know what? I'm not going to. I'm not, I'm not going to settle down. Why? Because God is moving. He's moving here tonight. I sent him already. I can't wait to share this passage with you. And it's all going to be centered around, next slide, it's all going to be centered around this idea. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I do not know the furniture salesperson, saleswoman, I do not know whether she was a believer or not. But what I do know is one time in my life I was lost and now I'm found. That's some of your stories. The Son of Man came, sought you out, you once were lost and now you're found. And so tonight you're sitting in that comfortable black seat in that powerful truth. You had no idea up from down and now somehow through Christ you literally know the God of the universe. But you start talking about lost and the unsaved, and the unbeliever, and things start getting really dicey really fast. When you start just thinking about lost people, I think, I think it evokes, what I'm going to propose, six things, I'm sure there's many more. You start thinking about lost people, there's some things that start happening in you. You may relate to three, four, or five of these, maybe none of them, but let me share these with you just to set the table. When thinking about the lost, maybe... I am quick to get angered. And I'm not talking about like a holy, righteous kind of good, godly, table-throwing-in-the-temple kind of anger. I'm talking about like sinful anger. Some of you see lost behavior in lost people, and you're still surprised that it, that it gets you angry. 
Let me, hey, let me clue you in, okay? Lost people act like lost people. Why in the world are we still judging them? Why do we think somehow that they're going to act like a believer when they are not a believer? They don't have the Holy Spirit in them. And we look at the behavior of lost people and we're like, come on, are you, are you serious? Like, 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 why can't you at least be moral? Let me tell you why. They have no reason to outside of pure morality, which pure morality in and of itself is dead. So some of you, you just start, you, I mean, you think, you, you have some very specific lost people that start coming to mind right now that are really in a season of life that are, they're like really, really angering you for whatever reason. Okay, that's some of you. Others of you, when you start thinking about the loss, uh, number two, you're, you're very, very quick to get softened and gracious. So you mean your heart, it just, you, you just think about the lost and you start tearing up. All the family members and friends and coworkers that don't know Jesus start coming to your mind and you know that they're not just projects but that they're people, real people with real need. And man, it just softens you. It breaks you. I mean, you're reaching for tissues right now. There, there's a certain level then of not just softening but a desire to extend grace. Instead of anger, you're like, man, extend grace, extend grace. I need grace, so extend grace. Unfortunately though, some of you when thinking about the loss, number three, you find yourself struggling with this. You, you wish they were out of your way. If we could just get rid of these lost people in this world, man, things would be so much better. Think about it. It, w- it would only be Joy FM. Like every station would be, like they'd have to think of a new jingle, right? It couldn't just be 99.1. Any, like it'd have to, you know, they'd have to get creative, right? If we could just get the lost people out of the way, we would never have... We never have any problems, man. We don't just get along. Really? Have you seen how the church acts at times? What a shame on us. If we ever see these precious people who do not know Jesus as people that if they just got out of the way, then we could actually live. Oh my goodness. God, kill that out of our hearts right this second. And some of you, I mean... Even down to traffic, right? God, if you could just get this law. I know they're lost by the way they're driving. God, if you could just get, get them out the way. It'd be so much better. Christians are the worst drivers. That's what I found. Amen. Number four, some of you, when thinking about the lost, you long to see their salvation. There's been people in this room that have prayed for family members, coworkers, neighbors for years and years fervently. You haven't given up like the persistent widow that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, you just keep going after it. God, I've been praying this prayer for nine and a half years, and I am not going to stop. Would you please save my mother? That's been some of your prayers. Would you save this sibling? Would you save this neighbor? You, you long. And you know what I found? The more you pray, the more joy that comes when God saves Oh, the joy of getting to watch when God's like, hey, listen, I'm going to save this person. You want to come along? In fact, I'm going to give you some words to say. And he actually like put words in your mouth. You get to share the gospel and watch God do a work. The joy of that moment is insane, absurd. Long to see their salvation. Some of you, and I want to walk through this a little bit. When you think about the lost, you know that you cannot get too close. And and I I want to counsel us through this. Some of you, this is a good word. You've recently come to Christ. You're, you're coming out of some um, pretty, for lack of a better term, uh, hardcore kinds of groups of friends and, and lifestyles. And so right now for you, it is very, very difficult to get too close to that old way of life because when you tow the line, not just does the line get hot, but you find yourself burnt sometimes, and that's what's happening to some of you. You're wanting to live for Jesus, but you're trying to figure out, how do I deal with all my old relationships? The truth of the matter is, some of you aren't yet strong enough to continue to build those relationships. Maybe one day. It's different for every person. But, but it's, it's very, very easy to see. If the old group of friends is influencing you away from the gospel, then listen, some massive repentance needs to happen in your life. It's plain and simple. But for some of you, that is a very, very good uh, wisdom to heed. I can't get too close. Others of you, man, God saved you. The Spirit is already moving, sanctifying, growing you so much so. You can hang around all of that. And, and though you're tempted, never find yourself indulging. Because you know how 
you know how it provides you absolutely nothing. Okay. Lastly, and I would say most importantly, when thinking about the lost, some of you pray fervently and pursue intentionally. I mean, you're just caught up in the work of God so much. You're just fervently going after, and then that fervency in prayer causes an action. And some of you who have read ahead are like, Mark, 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 Mark. Why are we talking about the lost when the subject matter tonight is speaking in tongues and prophecy part two, okay? Which is a fair question, okay? If you've read ahead in 1 Corinthians 14, it's one of the most difficult chapters in the whole New Testament, which I'm so thankful, this is why I'm excited, so thankful that we get to wrestle with hard texts. Aren't you glad that like we show up and, and some nights it's really, really tough, but we get to walk through it together, so the same people that are wondering, how do we get from talking about the lost to speaking in tongues? I cannot wait to show you. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13 to 25. We ended last week, verse 1 to 12, with verse 12. Here's what verse 12 says. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. That was the theme last week, building up the church. It wasn't speaking in tongues. It wasn't prophecy. It was participate in spiritual gifts, especially that build up the church. But now just for fun, let's read this whole passage to have a similar end to last week and to show us how confusing this actually is. So here we go. Chapter 14, verse 13. This will be a whole lot of fun. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Of course, verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do, Paul says? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying, and again, already similar to last week, you're like, of course, Mark, I've, I've studied this over and over and over in many a table room conversation. Of course not. Verse 17, look at this. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. <laughs> Excuse me? Okay, this is Paul, right? This, this seems arrogant. We're going we're gonna to get there. <laughs> it's like he, Right? You guys think you're awesome? Actually, I speak in way more tongues than all of you, so forget it. Verse 19, nevertheless, in church, which the first time I read this in study, I'm like, that's a rare phrase. I know it for sure. And sure enough, it is. Only three times the entire Bible does the phrase in church show up. And you know where all three mentions are? Right here in this chapter 14, okay? Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You carry the one. You can do the math there. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Verse 21. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. Of course, contradiction.com, verse 23. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of our heart uh, are disclosed, and so falling on his face, verse 25, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This really needs no explanation, right? It's pretty self-explanatory, amen? Okay, good, all right? So, so let's start here with verse 13 and 14. Again, right now it seems chaotic, confusing. You're like, please, can we just go back to chapter 13 and talk about love? No, you're going to appreciate this, I promise. Verse 13 and 14. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. All right. You start talking about speaking in tongues, people get instantly weirded out. Right? Okay? I've never seen in a setting like, in a setting like this where, where people start speaking in tongues and everyone just, you know, they like start like applauding, right? And like all of a sudden the, the t-shirts, like I speak in tongues t-shirts, you know, all of a sudden get exposed. It doesn't happen. Okay? It's kind of a weird thing to talk about. But in the scripture, which it is scriptural, there are two different kinds of speaking in tongues. 
I mentioned this last week. Quickly, I'll mention it now. The first we see in Acts. Early Acts, the Holy Spirit comes down on 120 that are gathered in a room. What happens is they begin to speak in languages as the Spirit comes on them like tongues of fire. They begin to speak in languages that can be heard and understood by some of the people that were in Jerusalem who are now gathering around the house. They were there to celebrate the festival. They hear the works of God, the scripture records, in their own language, in in a tongue, and then they respond. And the church goes from 120 to 3 grand in seemingly one day. So that's the first kind of speaking in tongues. The second, and, and the issue in Corinth, is this... This utterance, this prayer language, we would, we would call it kind of commun- communion with God in a, in a language that is not understood, that, that my spirit, that your spirit, as a spiritual gift that it is, makes a groanings or communicates somehow with God. Now what we saw last week, the issue in Corinth, is these people are romanticizing this gift. They're thinking that, well, if I don't pray in tongues, I guess I'm not a mature believer. I guess I'm not awesome. I I guess I'm not like this person. And so then what's happening apparently is in the public worship gatherings, people are praying in tongues all over the place, and it's created a chaotic worship atmosphere. That's what he's addressing. Okay. So he says then in verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Why? I told you last week that prophecy is better. Why? Because a prophetic word that's affirmed by the scripture or other believers is profitable for the building up of the body of Christ. Speaking in tongues that's just between God and I, it's not profitable for building up the church. That's why Paul says, you know what, pray that you can interpret. Because then when you can interpret, you can actually, it can actually be profitable and beneficial for the church. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but he says, my mind is unfruitful. So my spirit, essentially, is doing all of the work. My mind is distant. So, verse 15, he answers his own rhetorical question with a brilliant answer. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Um, Okay. So, um, we have a tendency to lust after emotionalism. When I say we, I'll speak for myself and maybe a few others of you. Uh, Some of my greatest times in worship um, that I remember were times where I I had tremendous emotion involved, okay? And so what that's done is it, it has built up in me this sometimes sinful lust after recreating an emotional experience where I can sense and feel God while even at times being mentally disengaged. Does that make sense? The way that I've said it in the past is where right emotion meets right theology, that's the beauty of worship. So in other words, where my view of God, both intellectually and in my heart, meets the emotion that is evoked by right view of God, that is a beautiful thing. So I start thinking on the character of God. And then I'm, I'm brought to this overwhelming emotion because of his awesomeness and grandeur. That is good emotion. But there's this other piece of me at times, again, that lusts after the feeling. The, it's almost like, uh, like worship gatherings and God can become just another pill to swallow, another drug that Christians go after, right? Okay. So what Paul is saying is, listen, I want my, my spirit and my mind to both be engaged, when I pray, I want to not just like pray in the spirit. I want to, I want to pray with my mind. When I praise, when I sing, I don't just want to be singing frivolous words. I want my mind to be intellectually engaged. One or the other, dicey, dangerous. But the two in combination, beautiful. Okay, that's the issue in Corinth. Verse 16, let's go on. This gets tricky. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Fair point. Okay? So you've got individual A who is praying in tongues in a worship gathering. So he's talking to God. No interpretation. Well, in that setting, how can anyone say amen? 
How can anyone say, I agree, or I confirm, or I'm with you? He doesn't, they don't even know what they're saying, right? So that, that's what Paul, it, like why in the world in a public worship gathering would it be beneficial for people to be praying in tongues all over the place when no one can celebrate the power of corporate prayer together? Corporate prayer is one of the most difficult things to participate in in the body of Christ, and it is a darn shame because it is so incredibly awesome. Let's take Brandon's prayer a second ago. Brandon starts praying, and some of you are like, oh, sweet, time to check out, right? Like, okay, this is the time of the service where we're supposed to pray, and you, like, get out your celly, you know what I'm saying? You're, like, catching up on the, on the quick feed that just came in. Someone texted you, you know, about this and that. We generally disengage in times of corporate prayer. They're praying, we're spectating, and all of a sudden we're at like the Christian sports arena, right? But the power of corporate prayer, and this is what Paul is alluding to, is that when one person is praying, we can be with them. That's why the beauty of La Families is so incredible. Praying in settings and living rooms where all of a sudden we're praying for someone or for something or praising God in some way. And we're doing so together. And as one person prays, both vocally and in our hearts, we're with them. We're saying amen, not just because we're robotic Christians that are trained to say amen, but because we are truly affirming what's being prayed. What's your name, brother? Oh, I didn't even see you, Sam. Sam, good to see you, dude. Dude, you've been working out. Looking looking big right there, bro. What's something right now we could pray for you, Sam? Like, what's something right now? Patience. Patience, okay. So right now, if I just said, all right, let's pray for patience for Sam. And I started praying. Again, the general tendency in the room would be like, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad Mark's got it, right? Like, Mark, you take it, man. Take it and run. But what if 250 people here tonight all of a sudden were praying for patience for Sam? The lack thereof says that we don't believe in the power of corporate prayer. The other side says that we're just spectators. You see what I'm saying? That, that's what's going on. That's what Paul is addressing Listen, if you're speaking in tongues and no one's interpreting, how can anyone say amen? How can, how can anyone be with you? They can't. For you may be, verse 17, you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. They don't even know what in the world you're saying. Okay. God, I pray that you'll give Sam great patience, whatever it is that he's walking through, journeying through right now, well, whatever the, the process may be, Father, I pray that you will make him a patient, humble man. In your name, amen. Right? So now, next, uh, next slide, now things build up in what Paul says in verse 18. This is crazy. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Have, has anyone ever told you this? Have you ever, has this ever come up in conversation, right? You're sitting across the lunch table, right? Man, I'm so thankful I speak in tongues more than you. It's just awesome. I just wanted to tell you about myself. I just, I speak... I know I speak in tongues at least 40% more than you do. Um, right? So, like, how are we to take this? It, it kind of puts a weird, a weird taste in my mouth, right? It's like, Paul, what? Why, why would... It's like you're contradicting... It's like you're, you're saying now the exact same thing that you're ridiculing the Corinthians for doing. It seems like they're escalating their spiritual gifts, and now it seems like you're doing that. Well, I think actually what he's doing is... Listen, 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 Corinthians. I get it. I speak in tongues. I, I, even, I pray in tongues, okay? But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to escalate, A, the gift above the giver, and B, I'm not going to think that somehow I'm a better Christian because I can do it. He's doing it as a means of diffusing people that would say, well, Paul, why are you teaching this? You don't even speak in tongues, bro. You need to sit back. So I think by saying, listen, friends, right, like this is my struggle too, or this is my issue too, or this is at least something that I've had to walk through, he diffuses a lot of possible arguments. He says in verse 19, the most famous verse in all the scripture on speaking in tongues, he says, nevertheless, in church, again, the only phrase uh, seen here three times in this chapter, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I want to say it this way, coming out of last week. It matters what comes out of our mouth. It matters. It matters. 
you guys remember when you were a kid, right? And sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That was the biggest lie ever. You know what I'm saying? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never, no, like words do hurt me. You know, like, why did you lie to me, mom? Right? Like this is, no, like this poem is horrible, right? Um, It matters what comes out of your mouth. Paul's a man that will say many, many, many things through his lifetime, both in script and, and through his mouth. Like, he's a guy that's going to preach many a sermon, share many a word. And he says, listen, I would rather speak five words that come from my intellect, birth from the spirit inside of me, that people are able to understand, than 10,000 where it's just my communion between God and I. It puts grave significance then on the words that you said even just today. If we were to collect all of the words that you communicated that came out of your mouth just today, and we were to put them on the screen, we just went by one. Sam, we prayed for patience for him earlier. What, what if we took him as an example? Unbeknownst to him, we tapped some cool device into his ear, and then all of a sudden, every word that he has said today came up on the screen. It would be a really interesting moment, wouldn't it? Right? I mean, we, it could either be super, super awkward or really encouraging, right? It's like, oh my goodness, I didn't know we'd see six F-bombs today on the church screen, right? Like, like or, or it would be really encouraging to see that, that Sam's pursuit and, and, and the things that are coming out of Sam's mouth are, are testifying to the works of God. Uh, let, me ask, uh, let me ask the same thing about you. It matters what comes out of your mouth. Not just because it's the overflow of your heart, but because so many are listening. That's why these things are paramount to Paul. He doesn't want to take one thing frivolously. He wants to make sure the church in Corinth understands. He wants to make sure they grow. I'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 in a tongue. And now, verse 20, the, the passage that I have to be honest, I'm obsessed with in this text. So that means we'll be studying it for half an hour. Brothers... Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be what? Be mature. Um, Have you ever seen a group of three-year-old boys in a popsicle box? Have you ever seen that before? If you haven't, let me tell you what happens, okay? Let's kind of paint it this way. I got a bunch of three-year-old boys. I'm using boys specifically because girls can kind of be, you know, princessy, okay, and, and make for a, a bad analogy. But the boys definitely would feed into this. Okay, so we got a nice table. It's covered with a black cloth. You got a bunch of three-year-old boys. Let's say seven of them, okay, just because it's a biblical number. And what happens is, what happens is we pull off this black sheet revealing a, a beautiful, you know, colorful popsicle box, uh, similar to one of the, some of the ones we had last week. Okay, so you got cherry, you got lemon in there. What are some other good popsicle flavors? Orange, blue. Oh, yeah, orange, come on. You got tropical punch. Okay, you got all this, right? What's that? Bomb Pops, it's a completely different brand, okay? Who said that? You need to learn your popsicles, okay? All right, here's what happens. Here's what happens. I have never in my entire life, in all my experience, seen that unveiling happen and then all of the three-year-olds say, oh, uh, well, what do you guys want first? What, what color would you like? I'll, t- I'll take lasties, okay? You, you, you never, ever see that. I want red. I want watermelon. I want, like, everyone is just shouting out the color they want. They're, like, pulling them apart. You know, fists start flying. If someone takes and steals their green, you know what I'm saying? It's like it becomes like all hell has broken loose over these popsicles, okay? This is what it is to think like a child, it's like, it's, it's all mine, I pursue what's mine, I go after what's mine, I'm not interested in anyone else. It would be so insanely weird, right? If you've got the little boy over there, he's like humming kumbaya, right? And he's like, oh, I'll just take the worst flavor, you know? <laughs> right? I'll take the, the broccoli and cheddar soup popsicle. No, I'm like, we'd be like, what's wrong with this kid? You know what I'm saying? Right? That's what it looks like to think immaturely, to think childishly. Now, I want to show you something else. Who's the oldest person in the room? I want to, I want to discover this. Who, who thinks, who, 
Okay, you're definitely not the oldest. How old, how old are you, Suzanne? 59. Anyone who beats 59 here? Come on, 59. You might be the oldest. Okay. Does anyone beat 59? No? Who's close? Who's close to 59? 52? Okay. Usri, how old are you? 55. Praise the Lord. So we got, well, we're close. Okay. And again, people say it's all young people here, Matthias. Look, we got three 50-year-olds. Come on. Right? And we love you. Now, now, Suzanne, who I love, okay, all the other seasoned folks, love you guys so much, Rob, my dear friend, Mr. Usry. Now, I want to make sure all, all of you guys understand something. We love, we care for you. But your age does not imply maturity. Okay? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, this is nothing to you guys specifically, but, but just because you're 60, 65, 70, it doesn't mean you're mature. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Okay, look at this. Age does not constitute maturity. Christ-likeness does. I've heard so many, so many young men and women, I just want to be mature. I just want to be mature. And, and, and somehow they think that Christian maturity is going to be achieved apart from obedience in Christ. You are mistaken and misguided. Wake up. Like, like you think somehow that you just wake up and you're mature because you got some armpit hair? Like, please, for the love. You guys remember the sixth grader that could grow a mustache? Like, they, it didn't make them mature. You guys remember? Like, they were some of the most awkward people that you knew, okay? Right? It's like, that's just unnatural, you know? And you should probably see a doctor. It, it, it was weird. Right. Okay. Now, the reason is, the reason is, what is mature? And this is what Paul is trying to address. Listen, listen, it's not acting like a child that's going to be, that's going to be and make you and cause some, some sort of pursuit of maturity. It is going to be a being an infant in evil. But being mature, he says, in your thinking. In your thinking. So I want to show you then how we can be mature in our thinking. Because quite honestly, many of you in here right now think that you're, that you're unbelievably mature. And right now, for many of you, you need a great reality check in your Christ-likeness. Oh, God, I'm mature. Yeah, but the, the problem is, like, you're, you're acting like a, like a kid going after a popsicle. Like, you're completely consumed with yourself. Philippians 3 paints a beautiful picture for us. Look at this. Not that I've already obtained this. is Paul. Or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Can we just take a moment and celebrate that truth? Like, I'm imagining him pen this, or through a scribe, pen this. Christ Jesus made me his own. I imagine his heart bursting out of his chest. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Stay tuned, verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in what? Come on, in Christ Jesus, let those of us who are what? Come on. Mature, what's the word? Think this way. You see? We're going to keep our eyes. We're going to pursue. We're going to press on into the person of Christ. Leaving what is behind. Straining for what is ahead. And in doing so, our thinking will prove itself mature because we will be in sanctification growing more like Christ. So listen, whether you're mature or not doesn't mean you got your driver's license. Your maturity is based in Christ on how much you look like Christ. Then maybe you can look at your parents and say, listen, I'm, I'm a grown man. It's not because you can pay your own bills. It's because you know that he paid yours and now you're resting in him. So he says in finishing this text, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, anyone, and if any, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Don't act like a child. Be an infant in evil. Instead, a mature thinker. Verse 21 is confusing. Let's look at it quickly. In the law it is written, this is in Isaiah 28, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then will they not listen to me, says the Lord. Here's what's awesome, is that Paul quotes Isaiah. It's just awesome, right? He, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing God's word. 
And all of a sudden, this random passage from Isaiah 28, verse 11 specifically, comes to his heart, which is all about using prophets from another land to call out a rebellious Israel. The point is, heed this wisdom. Like, don't make me resort to what I was doing back then where I was bringing prophets out of Assyria to call out the rebellious Israelites. Heed this wisdom, he's saying. And then verse 22, which I already mentioned is somewhat of a paradox. True story, in four, commentary, uh, four commentaries that I read on verse 22, they said is, it is the most difficult passage in the New Testament. True story. You'll see why here in a second. Thus, tongues are, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for, not for believe, uh, unbelievers but for believers. The reason why it's so difficult to describe, understand, swallow is because the verses that come after it seem to contradict it. So you're left like, what in the world are you saying, Paul? Okay? Are you speaking in tongues now? Like, you know, like, what's happening? Okay. The best rendering that I can put forth, and again, I don't want you to get hung up here. That's why we're going to spend 20 more seconds on it and move on. Okay? The best rendering I can put forth is that the sign here is actually a negative one. So it seems like initially that it would be a positive sign. It seems to make the most sense that it's a negative sign. Thus, tongues are a negative sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Okay, we'll see why here in verse 23. You guys ready? Strap on your seatbelt. Here we go. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter... Will they not say that you are out of your minds? So let's say right now, everyone in this room is praying in tongues. Okay? Everybody. It's loud. Okay? We don't, we don't know what's going on. It'd be, it'd be kind of interesting. Okay? And then you have someone here for the first time. Right? And they open that, that back double doors and they walk in. And at first they think, you know, they're, they're in a bilingual church, okay? They're like, oh, this is nice, right? We have a lot of nationalities here. This is special, right? But, but then they get in and, I mean, it's like, it's a strange experience, right? They're looking for the Kool-Aid, right? Like they're looking, what are these people? They're looking for the incense, okay? And they walk out of the doors literally thinking these people are out of their minds. Last week was about building up the believer. This week, a teaching that seems like it's about prophecy and speaking in tongues. Instead, it's about this right here. Next slide. Consider the unbeliever. What if in our lives, all of a sudden, we started considering the unbeliever? First, let me show you what considering the unbeliever is not. Look at this. Here it comes. Wait for it. Dramatic pause. It's down there at the bottom too, Andrew, so just fire that one. There we go. Morning, Jim. Robert. Hey. Hi, Jim. Pretty sharing our faith so awkward at times. Um, I, I want to propose to you, I want to propose to you that I think we consider the unbeliever generally in this circumstance. Next slide. We consider the unbeliever if it is convenient. The problem is this reality. Listen to this. If God used us in the salvation of one person a year, every single person in this room. In fact, let's take it to the whole body of Matthias. 
God said, hey, I'm going to save somebody. Come along. Then he gave you the words and you shared. person believed in Christ. That happened once a year for every single one of us for the next 30 years. At the end of 30 years, do you know how many people would have come to Christ? 21,000. Do you know how many people live in St. Charles? Okay, the downtown St. Charles area, that would be about a third of the whole city would be coming to Christ in 30 years. You know what that is? That's revival. And yet for us, like, considering the unbeliever is so awkward. It was so awkward in Corinth. They're like, why would we consider the unbeliever? Are you kidding? We're a bunch of believers that are gathered. We can do what we want. What's really encouraging is apparently unbelievers and non-believers were welcomed in the ancient church gatherings. I've had people question me on that all the time. Well, why, why, why are non-believers even welcomed? Like, the church are believers. Whoa, whoa, Even in ancient Pauline letters, we're seeing the contention that the non-believers are welcomed in. Beautiful stuff. So what does it look like then for us to consider the unbeliever? I want to look at first in our worship gatherings, because that was the issue in Corinth, and then I want to look at it a different scenario. And by the way, every single one of these, I pray and hope, is unbelievably convicting and prompting repentance. Number one, how do we consider the unbeliever in our worship gatherings? We, we don't assume that everyone understands. If that happened, do you know how much we would be considering the unbeliever? And some of you who are here not believing you came with a friend, I am so thankful that you are. And you know, and I hope that in your heart you're amening, which is just a simple way of saying I agree. Isn't it weird sometimes? Listen, if you took the Christianese out of your language, what would you have to talk about, some of you? If you couldn't say journeying with grace, forgiveness, walking, like, well, if you couldn't say some of the language that, we, that we've learned to say, if those words were out of your mouth, okay, you could use no Christian emojis, like nothing. If all that was gone, would you have anything left? Listen, do you realize that when you say certain things to a non-believer, they have no idea what you're saying? In fact, in fact, they're thinking like, they're taking it literally. Hey, would you like to journey with me? Like, where are we going to go? Are we going on vacation or something? Like, no, like, you know, like our lives, we're going to like journey together. Whoa, you need to back the heck up, okay? I'm not journeying with nobody, okay? Like, I, I already got, I'm, I'm already journeying, right? Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, when we assume... All of a sudden then, it creates this ability to have this this separatist language. When we kill assumption, it is such a beautiful opportunity for people to come in and just learn and bring their curiosity and grow and ask questions and not feel intimidated to do so. Is it possible that the church is the most intimidating place in the world? Is anyone else wrecked by that? Again, I think that's what's going on in Corinth, which is a darn shame because, like, the the Corinth church is growing because it's the first time that they've ever heard the gospel. And so people are curious. They're coming in, right? They're like, hey, man, I want to hear about Jesus. And instead, they're turning their back because they're getting weirded out by all the Christians. What if in our worship gatherings, we killed the assumptions? We stopped using language that created a barrier. I taught. Instead of assuming that everyone just knows what a Pharisee is, I actually explained everything and walked people through it so they could learn and grow. Number two, how do we consider the unbeliever in our worship gatherings? Number two, we kill a culture that fosters acting. I guarantee you in Corinth, a person walks in like, oh man, I guess to be up in this worship service, you got to speak in tongues. Counterfeit speaking in tongues. Again, it's, it's a spiritual gift, yes, but you can, you can at times fake for the betterment of others, it seems, Spiritual gifts. And so counterfeit speaking in tongues. They were like, man, I got to speak in tongues. All right, I better say this vowel or this consonant super, super fast, see what happens. I, I guess here, that's what you have to do to be accepted. What if? What if people knew they had to do nothing to be accepted here except just walk in? Instead, very easily, well, I guess I need to sing that way or make or do this, or sit this way, or take notes this way, or have a leather-bound Bible, or what, like, and on and on and on. The culture is created by sneering looks. 
culture isn't created by you having a leather-bound Bible or by you raising your hand. Like, that's fine. That's genuine, prayerfully. Culture's created when someone who isn't doing that all of a sudden gets a look. When someone who isn't doing that all of a sudden feels distance. Why? Mark, I am sure no one at Matthias's Lot Church has ever gotten a look or a sneer in judgment, really. And I want to say this in a way of an apology, sincerely and genuinely for me. If you have ever here experienced that, I am so sorry. And not just to the unbeliever, but to the believer here that feels like they have to act like something to be accepted. I pray, I pray that you could forgive us. And that we could walk together in a different kind of way that you could even call us out on our sin. So that instead what could be created here is an atmosphere that people can, not just in the old, ancient, you know, Christianese language, come as you are. People actually could do that. And that just doesn't mean like that they can wear jeans to, to the church gathering. They can, just, they can just come. Listen, there was a dude who was here in the first service who was one week clean from heroin. You, it's beautiful. And he comes up and he's like, here's where I'm at. I'm just... I want to grow, man. I, like, I feel like the Lord's doing and even did tonight a work on my heart. Like, yes, yes. He didn't feel like he had to do or be anybody except right where he was. Keep coming with that, Lord, please. Thirdly, how do we consider the unbeliever? You know what? We pursue everybody, everybody. Listen, one of my greatest myths is when a, a new Christian who's used to church ministries, comes in here, and they're like, hey, Mark, how can I get on the greeting team? And I'm like, you already are. Well, where do I get my name tag? No, maybe you're mistaken. Okay. If you're a believer and you're, and you're here and you're from Calvary, guess what? You're on the greeting team, okay? I know it's easy to think that you're going to, you know, come here and get some stuff for you to go, whatever. Like, no, no, guess what? You're here. You're a believer. You're on the greeting team. Why? Because we embrace everybody. We welcome everybody. We pursue everybody. And if we all embrace that, then nobody would fall through the cracks. But the problem is there's like 15 people on the greeting team, and sometimes they have to have a name tag to feel empowered. I wish in the passing the peace time it was mass chaos in here. That would be beautiful. It wasn't passing the peace. It looked more like a mosh pit up in here. You know what I'm saying? Passing the mosh pit, right? Because people just, they just wanted to love each other. And they weren't just pursuing the people that looked like them or talked like them or that provided some sort of, you know, aspect to them that made them feel better about themselves. They were actually crossing the aisle looking for the person that even uh, in, in that moment was somewhat awkward. Again, if you've ever been here and you have felt ostracized or left out or, or you felt like you weren't cared for, I pray that you would forgive us. I pray you would forgive us. That's not our heart. It's not our intention. But I guess it has happened, and I'm sorry. But it takes all of us. It doesn't take a few of us to break that. You see what I'm saying? All right. Let's leave the church gathering now, and let's get a little bit closer to home, pun intended. Next slide, okay? How do we consider the unbeliever in our neighborhood, complex, dorm, trailer park, like wherever it is that you live? How do we consider the unbeliever there? Okay? Number one, look at this. Easy, easy stuff to walk through. We extend grace when we get frustrated. It is unbelievable to me how many believers get frustrated with non-believing neighbors. I can't believe they parked in my spot. I can't believe they, they let their dog do his business on my yard. I can, and on and on and on. I can't believe they're playing music till, to whatever, like whatever the case may be. And you know what the world would expect? The world would expect anger. The world would expect frustration. The world would expect a call to the cops late at night to take care of it. You know what the world doesn't expect? The extension of grace. You know what you didn't expect? Jesus to extend grace. You see what I'm saying? When we consider the unbeliever, oh my goodness, it changes your whole perspective of why even you are in that place of lodging. And let me make sure we're on the same page. The only reason why you live where you live, the only reason, the only reason is for the glory of God. That's it. There is no other reason. And if you want to try to name one for me, like it's not going to happen. The only reason you reside there is to spread the message and the love of Christ while caring for that group of people that you're around. 
And again, if all of us embrace that holistically, it'd be insane. That's why number two is so vital. How do we consider the unbeliever in embracing hospitality, an open home? Not just to the people that are comfortable. Let me ask you this. Listen, some of you guys, maybe in the dorm setting was a little bit easier. Some of you guys know this about my story. I lived in the freshman dorms all four years. All four years. Okay, like the upperclassmen were like, peace. Like, we're, go, we're, go, we're going out. We called it at McKenna. We called it West, okay? The, the West apartments, whatever. I was like, there will never be a time in my life where I will be in a hallway with 40 dudes. Okay, my freshman year, I was the only believer out of 40. Some of you guys know my story. My sophomore year, a ton of those dudes came to Christ. I wanted to be there. Why? Because tremendous opportunity. Tremendous opportunity. And when you practice hospitality, oh my goodness. So I... We have some neighbors, love, love, love them, gotten to know them so well. We, we chose our house because our backyard, like you can, you can literally like stand on our deck and talk to all of our neighbors. We built great relationships with all of them. Every once in a while, we'll come home and ask the kids, hey, who do you want to serve tonight? And I love when my kids pick our, our neighbors. Hey, let's take cookies to the neighbors. Let's do this for the neighbors. All right, cool. So uh, several months ago, we cooked, uh, cooked some cookies for our neighbors, took them over there. And uh, man, great Beautiful, loving couple lives next door. Not believers in Christ, okay? I've invited them to Lot Family Church. We built a strong relationship. It's all good. We have that conversation, but they're just not interested. And so she, listen to this. The next day, she, knew, she knows I like chocolate sheet cake. Anybody? Come on. Have a moment. Chocolate sheet cake. Amen, right? Agree with that. Remember earlier, right? So she, she knows I like chocolate sheet cake. So the next day, she brought over chocolate sheet cake. So like now, it was, you're like... You're enjoying hospitality with non-believers. But some of you don't even know your neighbor's names. Again, I'm sorry. Maybe it's gotten confusing for you. And I understand because I've certainly had my battles. But how in the world can that place of lodging be a place for the gospel when you don't even know the names of the people that are living right next door? You see, like there's no consideration then of the unbeliever. You think then that that home is for your comfort. This, this is for me. I come home, I do my thing, everyone else can do their thing. The bigger the privacy fence, the better. I'm knocking down fences, you know what I'm saying? Our neighbors built a privacy fence, I think, to, you know, kind of simmer me down a little bit. But I'm like, oh man, I'm like peeking around that thing, you know? <laughs> right? I'm already a close talker, like... You know, put, put, put our houses next together, you're going to see what happens, you know. <laughs> Practice hospitality. Embrace hospitality. How do we consider the unbeliever? And finally, this is huge. All right. Why not, Sam? Okay. Selfless conversation is the most difficult thing for the 30 and under generation right now. By far. I know because I have conversations with you. And 98% of the conversations are about you. Every once in a while, someone will ask me, like, how I'm doing. Every once in a while. But generally, the conversation is about you. Why? Because you've, you've learned selfish conversation. You've learned to talk about yourself. You've learned to answer questions about yourself. But to embrace and consider the non-believer, you are learning selfless conversation. You're learning not to, like, get out your list of 35 questions. Hey, neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, I have a few questions to ask you, okay? Number one, right? What, what's the one? You don't know. Hey, man, hey, how was work today, man? Across the fence. Oh, it was all right. Just all right today? Yesterday it seemed much better. Just all right today? Yeah, man, just all right. It's, you know, I don't know. And, and you'll know, like a, a non-believer, they don't want to talk about it. But you keep going, okay? Gently, graciously, lovingly. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, man, I'm just, I'm just today, my, my boss yelled at me and Mark, like, whatever. You don't even, it's okay, man. No, 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 bro. Like, what did he say? And just on and on and on. And pretty soon what started out as how was work today, now all of a sudden, we're getting to the core of this person's heart. You guys see what I'm saying? That is selfless conversation. I am tired of talking about anything less. I'm tired of talking about myself. Anybody else? I hate it. 
Like, I, I, go, to, I go to pastor conferences, you know, when everyone's kind of like, oh, what's your church? And I, I hate that setting because I don't like talking about this. I just want to hear about what God's doing in others. And yes, I'll, I'll share what God's doing here, but I want to, that's considering the non-believer. Maybe right now you're realizing that you desire to be evangelistic, but in terms of considering the unbeliever, the non-believer, you have done little to none. If that's the case, then you certainly align with Corinth. Paul, what do you, who cares? We're getting our emotional pursuits, spiritual journey with God on right now. Like we, we, don't, we don't need to think about anyone else who would walk in here and potentially be miffed that they didn't feel accepted. Whoa, Paul's saying. Listen, these last two verses in this text are so beautiful. I can't make you take this in right now, but I'm just, I'm asking that you would. Okay, check this out, verse 24, 25. But if I'll prophesy, and again, prophesy is this, now not an office, but this communicating truth prompted by the Spirit needs to be affirmed by Scripture or other believers. But if I'll prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, so people are speaking the truth, a non-believer walks in, he is convicted by all. So he starts hearing the truth and, and the truth begins to cut like it did for you. The truth begins to open like it did for you. Okay. Begins to get convicted. He, he is called to account. He, he's called to task. He's not just convicted, but there's like, there's action involved. Like you're a sinner and you need a savior. And without a savior, you're going to spend the rest of your life distanced from God. And that is the one thing you need the most. And all of a sudden they're being exposed and, and, and all of a sudden they're being convicted, but, but they're feeling prompted to action. And then, and I would say most importantly, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Do you remember this moment for you, believer in the room? Where it was all laid bare. Where you were found out. Where you realized that there were no secrets hidden from God. And he exposed it. And he brought it to your attention. And you actually believed it to be true. But then you didn't just believe that your secrets were laid bare and that God knew all. You believed for the first time, do you remember this? That he knows everything about me. He knows every grotesque thought. He, he knows that thing I would never repeat. He knows that thing I did when no one was looking. Like he knows it all and still somehow loves me and pursues me and, and, and sought me out and saved me. Do you remember that moment when you realized that? That's what Paul's saying. When all of a sudden, the non-believer walks in and hears the truth of God and is convicted and is prompted to action, and then all of a sudden his secrets are laid bare, and he realizes that God loves in spite of those secrets. Look, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Oh, my goodness, the joy of that, of seeing the disgruntled become the worshiping, of seeing the distant from God all of a sudden become the yearning for him. Of the ones that you had written off, that I had written off, that said no way they'll ever turn to the Lord. And then we turn around, and not just are they turn to the Lord, they're on their face worshiping God because they've realized how holy He is. This is the beauty of considering the unbeliever. And then maybe, just maybe, the one person a year and, th and seeing 30 salvations in your lifetime over the next 30 years collectively is a massive revival out of control by God's grace that you and I get to experience because we are praying fervently for salvation, offering opportunity for people to respond to the truth of the gospel and embracing a church that desires to consider the unbeliever because they're people and not projects. And then we get the joy of watching God save. Last thing I want to show you is this. Remember this text from early on? 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Do you guys know what story this is from? Anybody? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, which is a great example of Christian lingo, right? He's a wee little man. Next slide. I want to show you the, I want to show you the text. He entered Jericho, Jesus, and he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Two things that for the common Jew would have been hated. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but, in, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead of and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Jesus coming by, Zacchaeus goes up, next slide. And, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, which is awesome that Jesus knows his name. Okay? I'm guaranteeing you he wasn't wearing a name tag. Okay? Right? Jesus knows, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. Can I just, look, can I just ask you, do you see any consideration for the unbeliever here at all, my friends? This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus did for you. And if you read the Gospels at all, you will watch the Son of Man seek and save and pursue and go after the lost. And remember what we, what we saw a couple chapters ago? We are those witnesses then. So he goes to Zacchaeus' house. And of course, it chaps people off. He heard and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And I pray, I pray that that not be the kind of chastisement that happens here. When we pursue those, not in a way to be tempted, but pursue those in a way to be loved, I hope and pray that here people are encouraged to love the lost and not encouraged to run away. And so here's what happens, crazy in. And Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, look, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. How about that? Action. He's prompted. And Jesus said to him, the only time this is ever mentioned in any of the Gospels, today salvation has come to this house. And so then you know what verse 10 is? Next slide. There it is. Here's what I believe. Today, right now, salvation has come to this house. I think some of you have walked in here as an unbeliever or very distant from God. You remember a time when you were close, but that was a long time ago. And right now is the day of salvation. To the non-unbeliever here, listen. I want to right now so badly consider you, love you so much. To share this beautiful truth. That right now you can know the God who knows everything about you. And still he loves you, forgives you, and offers a way out of yourself through the sacrifice of his son Jesus. He allowed his son to be killed so that your sin could be forgiven. There is no other God uppercase, lowercase, who has done anything even remotely close to that, even by story. It hasn't happened. He sacrificed his son so that you could know him. And so tonight, if you've ever been in the confines of a church, my guess is that there's been a meal that has kind of confused you, and I want to bring clarity to it right now. Uh, maybe you've seen a pastor break the bread and say, this is the, represents the body of Christ, so let's take and eat in remembrance of him. Well, this is an ancient meal. And what we are going to do right now is, is every believer in the room can come to this table and pull off a piece of the bread. And what they're doing in celebrating this meal is remembering Christ. Remembering Christ. Thank you, God. We have no other way. We have no other option. God, you are the only way. Thank you that you're gracious. And so every believer in the room will come and pull a piece of that bread off and they'll dip it in the cup. And this cup represents the blood that was spilt so that you could be forgiven. Listen, unbeliever. Maybe you've come in here lost, but I'm telling you, you can leave here found. 
not found by church culture, not found by some idealistic moral way of living, found by the God of the universe who knows your name, created you, loves you, and longs to extend grace and salvation to you right now. So I want to invite you to the table. Maybe you've never ever taken communion before, but you're like, Mark, I'm tired of living for myself. I don't, I don't, I don't know all of the truths of Scripture, but what I do know is that God has the power to save me. And I do believe that His Son died and rose again. So come and take this meal. For believers, listen, a lot of considering of yourself that right now must be repented of. So that not just the unbeliever is considered, but that your life becomes what it is meant for, the glory of God. That's it. And so run to this table tonight. Receive the grace of God. And share tonight in the opportunity to make yet one more proclamation. We serve a risen, reigning Lord. And I will, I will tell all of the world about Him. I have nothing to be ashamed of. He's coming back and I'm His kid. Run to this table and celebrate with me. God, please. Stern hearts, soften hearts, Put us on our face in worship. I pray, God, that we would be the church that you've called us to be, that we wouldn't shy away, God, from loving the non-believers so well. I pray that we would do so in an uncompromising fashion. Welcome us at this table. I pray against shame, fear, condemnation. I pray for acceptance, love, and grace. Respond when you're ready. Let's remember Christ.